let me begin just by introducing myself. If I haven't met you, my name is Nick. I am the uh, the lead pastor here. Uh, let's read here. Let me let me get you into 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 God's word. We're in Luke five. So if you have a Bible, um, awesome, open it up. If you don't, raise your hand. The ushers will bring one to you. But we are in Luke's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then chapter five. We're going to be reading verses 27 through uh, verse 32. So we just got done with kind of a little mini series tangent on how do you glorify God? Um, Drawing that from the verses that came right before this text. Now we're going to move on and we're going to meet another man, a man by the name of Levi this morning. Uh, We're in Luke 5, verse 27. Let me read it and then we will... uh, We'll pray. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Would you guys pray with me? There's not a person in this room, Lord, that doesn't need to be around that table. There's not a person in this room that's not sick in need of healing. Sinful in need of forgiveness. Desperately lonely in need of fellowship with the living God. God, I'm amazed that the great physician does his work around the dinner table. I'm amazed that you would come and you would eat with a sinner like me. God, I'll admit that as time goes on, I I grow um, I grow used to the idea of fellowshipping with you. I grow used to the idea of being accepted by you. God, I want us to walk this morning back through the sandals of Levi and remember we don't belong at your table and be amazed afresh by the grace that you've shown us. I pray that you would use this message. You would use our time here to do that. And God, if there are people in this room that don't know you, if there are people that have been either walking away or people that have, have, have never even, never even uh, come to faith. God, we pray that this morning you show them that there, there's room even for them and that you're calling even them, that your love, your grace extends even to them. And would you bring them to your side? In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, I'm just going to give you my main point up front. Um, are you ready for it? I'm not making you work for this this morning. You can go home right now if you want it. This is the main point. This is all I'm going to be developing, essentially. Jesus wants you at his table. Jesus wants you at his table. I, I don't know if you've ever been... Um, if you've been to one of those weddings where they don't kind of have the tables, uh, you know, there's like not assigned seats for the reception and you come in, perhaps you're like the friend, like I was at one of these where you're the friend from out of town or whatever. And no, you're kind of that one kind of loner friend who nobody else really knows, but from one random season in his life, uh, you knew this guy. So you're invited to his wedding. You come in and then at the reception, you realize there's no assigned seats. You're one of the first ones in. So you go and you sit down. And then to your dismay, as the rest of the crew comes in and people start sitting down, choosing their seats, no one comes down to sit next to you because nobody knows you. And you're sitting there going, man, nobody wants me at their table. Had that happen? Maybe you haven't. It's not a fun feeling, but maybe a whole life kind of feels that way. Like I'm just always... On the outside, I'm always looking in through the window at other people celebrating around the table. And parents, spouse, coworkers, even people at your church, they don't want to make room for you around their table. But listen to me, I, I don't care how unworthy, how despised, how broken, how sinful how socially awkward you feel. Jesus wants you at his table. He wants to share a meal with you. And if that doesn't mean all that much yet, I trust it might mean a little more as we progress through the text. You'll see it. You'll see what I mean. So, at the center of our text in uh, Luke 5 is this meal, and you see it there in verse 29. It's this meal that Jesus is, is sharing with kind of the riffraff of his day, some of the outsiders, the outliers. It's an amazing scene when at last we see it for what it really is, and we're, we can learn a lot from it. And um, so I, we're actually probably going to spend two weeks on this scene, on this text because I want to draw out not just the truths that this shows us about Christ, but also what this can mean for our life and how we handle uh, our dinner tables at home. So what we're going to do is uh, this week, we're going to come at the meal from Christ's perspective. We're going to talk about what I would call Christ's table strategy. Uh, in other words, how he uses the table to reveal his redemptive purposes to heal the sinner. He uses the dinner table as one of his key missional strategies to heal the sinner. I want to look at that today. He wants you, he wants I at his table. But then next week, we're going to look at this meal from Levi's perspective. We're going to talk about Levi's 
table strategy. We're going to talk about how he uses the table to rehearse and reinforce the redemption that Jesus is accomplishing. So suddenly what we see is, is Jesus's table strategy involves the, the revealing of redemption. But Levi's table strategy involves the reinforcing of that redemption by inviting others to come and dine, inviting others to come and share fellowship of bread and wine in Christ's presence. If Jesus wants us at his table, the question we'll ask next week is, who do we want to sit around ours? We're going to see that the table, the simple, mundane, everyday table, stained with spaghetti and mac and cheese and whatever else, is massively strategic in our discipleship, our evangelism, and often in our culture, underused neglected so before we can get to this table uh this meal at all we first need to actually deal with verses 27 to 28 which kind of give us an entry point into the banquet we see there in verse 29 i want to spend some time introducing to you levi and and and, uh we'll talk about those those opening verses there so jesus has moved from the scene with the the paralytic uh, which was awesome. It was amazing to watch him not just heal his brother's body, but 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 this man's soul, forgiving his sin. Right? He's moved from the paralytic, and now he's he's on his way, and it seems like he focuses his his gaze. He's intently looking upon uh, now this tax collector named Levi, and he's got something planned for this brother as well. Uh, it would be wise for us to consider for a moment what it means to be a tax collector. Uh, because we were told there that Levi is sitting at his tax booth and he's this tax collector. It's what he does. Well, if we're going to gather all that uh, Jesus is accomplishing here, if we're going to see the real profound nature of it all, we have to know how tax collectors were even perceived back in his day. Some of you might be familiar. Some of you might not. But it's... Um, worth our time for a moment. Uh, I, I think if you consider even our, our um, present day and age, I don't know if we necessarily have this kind of tax collector, but the idea we still loathe. We still understand this idea in, in one sense. Uh, nobody likes it when, uh, you know, tax, the tax collector comes, so to speak. I bought... Uh, Christine probably wouldn't like this, but, you know, we buy hairspray from time to time. And, and you know, it's got that I, I, somehow or other here in California, I guess, because in Philly they didn't do this. You know, when it's not the little push button, but it's the, yeah, aerosol, I'm, I'm like, why is my bill like a dollar higher? Well, because I guess it's bad for the environment or something. So they tax you. Well, does anybody like that? No, nobody likes the taxes when they come. Nobody likes being audited. Nobody likes the tap on the knock on your door asking for money that you owe. That's not a conversation we like having. That's not a person we want to invite in for tea or whatever, right? In fact, we're kind of put out by the whole thing. And so we can understand to some degree We kind of have this natural, sorry, I want to make sure I'm not tangled. Um, We kind of have this natural understanding and a resentment towards the tax collector. Now, forgive me if that's part of the work you do. That's necessary work. (laughs) 
But I don't think uh, even seeing that, I don't think we even get the least sense of what uh, was going on here in Jesus' day. There's there's this whole other level, this whole other level of loathing that would take place uh, because of who these men were, what they stood for there in Israel. And in fact, I would say there are at least three different layers um, to the whole problem that tax collectors were uh, there in Israel. Let me give you those layers now. First, politically. Politically, the tax collector was an Israelite siding, in a sense, with Rome. So the tax collector uh, represented Rome, and they were, they were getting money from Israel for Rome. I mean, so these guys were considered collaborators. They were considered traitors. How could you... An Israelite, a Jew, be siding with the Romans, the enemy of God. The Romans aren't even supposed to be here in the land, the promised land. This is Yahweh's land. This is our land, and you're working for them, tax collector. So there's a political problem here, as one commentator puts it. Anyone familiar with moles and informants in Nazi and communist regimes will appreciate the loathing of tax collectors in first century Judaism. In other words, these are the guys working for the government that you want out. And they're, they're kind of acting like they're your friend, but they're ratting you out when, it, when it's all said and done. And he goes on, he says, there could not have been many Jews in first century Palestine who expected or even wished to see in a tax collector anything other than the husk of an individual whose soul had been eaten away. Did you hear that? By complicity with Roman repression. It's just a husk of a person here. Certainly he doesn't have a heart. He sold his soul to the enemy. It's a political problem here. But there's another layer. Ceremonially, there's a problem as well. Because we realize that for the strict Israelite, if the tax collector is going to be doing his job, he's going to be rubbing shoulders all the time with Gentiles. And that's going to make him, therefore, ceremonially unclean. Um, there are certain documents that, that, that reveal the rabbis would even go so far as to say that, hey, if a tax collector so much as enters your house, your whole house, it's, it's over. It's unclean. Your house is unclean now because he just walked in. So politically, ceremonially, it's a problem. But then ethically, And this is probably the deepest issue of them all. Ethically, uh, it's understood that the current process for taxation actually allowed the tax collector to kind of set his own rates. So he could he could he could raise things up a little bit, steal a little bit more from you, put a little bit more in his pocket. And this was going on all the time. So these guys were known not just as traitors, not just as unclean, but as thieves, as cheats, as guys who would gouge even the rich and the poor alike. To try to bring this uh, home for us just for a moment, um, because I realize sometimes when you when you 
get back into the biblical world, you have a trouble for a moment bridging it to where we're currently at. I think this is relevant for the political firestorm that we find ourselves in right now. I don't know what your Facebook feed is like, but mine is almost... Uh, <laughs> let's put it this way. I've talked to some of you who say, listen, I can't even get on Facebook anymore. I'm taking a break because of all the political stuff that's just going on. Not that we don't care about it. It's just crazy. And people are angry. Well, let me bring this home for a moment to you guys. You can maybe picture what they're feeling like when they would look at a tax collector. For some of you, the tax collector might be the Democrat. Okay? Might be the Democrat. The guy who's sided with the enemy. The guy who no longer has regard for God's word. The guy who is promoting now, uh, you know, the agenda of the homosexual and the agenda of abortion or whatever it might be. But then for others of you, the tax collector might be the Republican. (laughs) That's just the nature of, of the debates these days. The Republican is the one who sided with the enemy. The Republican is the one who no longer has regard for God's word because they don't care about the oppressed. They don't care about the minority. They don't care about the refugee or whatever it is. And we kind of go back and forth and demonize, villainize the other side. And what we're going to see here is whether you voted for Hillary You voted for Trump. Jesus wants you around his table. He wants to put broken people, tax collectors, together around the table. And he doesn't get as worked up as we do about all this. This is yet another example of where Jesus moves towards the outlier to bring him in. And we see that Jesus' kingdom and his table <laughs> is not of this world. Not anything like this world has ever seen. As we return to our text, we now find Jesus beginning to interact with this man, this tax collector. Um, let me read this to you here in the latter part of verse 27. He said to him, follow me. And he said to him, follow me. Now, certainly, um, I do think that there is kind of a flash of Christ's sovereignty in this scene. I love some of these scenes in the gospel. I don't think they're just trying to be succinct or real quick summaries of what happened when it says, hey, he said, follow me. And the dudes just like instantaneously drop whatever they're doing and they follow him. I don't think Luke or, or Matthew or the gospel writers when they're doing that are just saying, let's just skip to the chase. You know, let's just cut to the chase. Okay, they, they, they left and they followed. No, I think we're supposed to see a flash of Christ's sovereignty in these sorts of things. So when Jesus shows up, he comes up to this tax collector, Levi, and he says, follow me. And Levi will read next, just immediately drops everything and follows him. We're supposed to get a sense, whoa, Jesus is the real deal. 
This is almost like a sovereign summons here. And when eyes are opened to see who he is, when ears are opened to hear his voice, when hearts are opened to, to, to engage him with affection, to just leave everything else and obey whatever you say, we're on it. We're on it. So I think we're supposed to see some of that sovereignty here in this text as Jesus begins to interact with Levi. But perhaps there's more as well. Perhaps there's something else, and I, I, I don't want to miss this. Um, I do imagine, I think we have to assume, that all the reports that we've read up to this point that have been spreading abroad about Jesus. I mean, almost after every miracle, it's like the news about him spread and people just started talking about him and telling everyone, did you hear he did this? Did you hear that guy did this? Did you hear that guy from Nazareth? He did that. I have to imagine that Levi had heard some of this, that the word had spread even to him about perhaps the, the sick that were healed, the, the uh, demons that had been cast out, the paralytic, you know, that had been restored, or the leper that was cleansed, and people are being forgiven of sins by this guy. And then I just think, man, as he's watching Jesus come near, this guy who's the outlier, the outcast, the one who, if he even enters your home, you got to like take a bath and scrub everything down. Is watching Jesus move towards him. And this Jesus is calling him towards himself. He's not ashamed to be associated with me. Follow me, Jesus says. And I'm thinking that Levi's just going, no way. What is this man doing here talking to me? The traitor. The impure, the unclean, the thief. Does he even know my backstory? You know what? I don't care if he knows it or not. He's talking to me. He sees me at the tax booth. He knows what I'm about. And he's still not ashamed to be associated with me. Therefore, I'll drop everything if it means I get to be with him. So I think there's more than just sovereign summons going on here. I think there's a heart of an individual who perhaps feels lost, broken, ashamed, upset, confused, disoriented in life, finding someone come in that can believe in him. And he's going to know when he wants to love me. He, he, he wants to make me more than I've been. He wants to clean up the mess that I have made. This man who could do it all has come for me. It's come for me. So Levi gets it. Levi is stunned by the grace of it all. And therefore, Luke tells us, verse 28, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. There's no doubt. There's no second guessing. He just leaves it all and follows Jesus. Now, in case we miss uh, the full weight of that word, everything, I want to sit on that for a moment. 
Let me read to you uh, the words of one commentator so we can kind of see what that even means for Levi before we consider it for ourselves. This must have meant a considerable sacrifice for Levi. For tax collectors were normally wealthy. We should not miss the quiet heroism in this. If following Jesus had not worked out for the fishermen, they could have returned to their trade without difficulty. In fact, they kind of do. <laughs> After Jesus is crucified, where does he find them? They're out fishing. <laughs> but when Levi walked out of his job, he was through. They would surely never take back a man who had simply abandoned his tax office. His following of Jesus was a final commitment. Do you hear that? This is a big deal for Levi. To just say, you know what? I'll leave the money. I'll leave the job. I'll leave whatever comforts it afforded me. To follow this guy who's walking, I don't even know where. I just know I want to be there. <laughs> because he wants me to be with him. Now, think about this a little bit more. We are aware, and Luke is going to make us incredibly aware as we progress through the gospel. We're aware that the poor are often rich in spirit, right? He'll say that often. He'll emphasize that it's the poor that are coming to Christ. It's the poor that, that, that are, did I say rich in spirit? I should have said rich in faith. It's really what I was after. They're ready to believe. They know they have need. And when Jesus comes, they're ready. Well, guess what? Sometimes, you guys, we, the Bible will never, never allow us to put things in kind of a black and white uh, box like that. Because sometimes, sometimes Silicon Valley, it's the richest people that are the most ready for the Savior. Sometimes it's the people that have it all that are ready for redemption. You want to know why? Because they've had the world. They've tasted the world. They've tried to get it all. They've even enjoyed a little bit of it all. And they go, it's not what I thought it would be. It's kind of left me a shell of a man, a shell of a person. Where's the joy it promised me on the front end of this pursuit? Now I have it. Now I'm sitting in my house, drinking the champagne, looking over the hills, going, what's the point of life? There's still more. Jesus comes perhaps to a man like that, a man who had a lot. But this man had sold his soul to get it. Sold his soul to get it. Tasted the emptiness of it. And perhaps he thought, no way would Jesus ever have me. No way is there forgiveness for me or a restart for me. I sold my soul to Rome to get what I have. I abandoned my people. I cheat my people to get what I have. There's no way someone could come and help me clean up this mess and yet here comes jesus offering another start offering a way out sometimes it's the richest of people that are the most ready for jesus so they've got it all but they feel empty and they know what they need they need forgiveness they need life they need god now everyone here this morning has to face 
this call. Follow me. I just want, I want Jesus to be in this room. I know he's in this room and he's speaking to us through his word. And he's saying, follow me. And every one of us has to face that. And I put it that way because for some of us, it's going to be the best thing ever. For some of us, it's going to be like Levi when we hear that. We're going to say, no way. How in the world would he have a sinner like me in his fellowship? How would he want me kind of, kind of tagging along behind him as he does all this great stuff? No way could I be accepted. Could I be received? We would catch the amazing grace of it. We would be enthralled by it. And we would follow him. It would be an honor. But for some of us, facing that call, follow me, hear that, hearing that call, follow me, could be threatening, could be almost ominous. Because we go, but does that mean that I have to pull off that whole everything part? That whole leave everything to follow you part? The whole, if you want to be my disciple? <laughs> You have to leave the things of this world. And the person that looks back isn't fit to be my disciple. Does it mean we have to do that part? Follow me? Because that sounds a little bit scary. Everything sounds a little bit comprehensive. And I'm not so sure you're worth all of that. It's a breathtaking thing um, to think about what that word, everything, wraps around. Uh, think of all we can put into that word. I mean, we can start with the bad stuff, like our sin, like our guilty pleasures, our lusts, our pride, our self-righteousness, our cheating and manipulating at work. You're going to have to let that go. That's part of the everything we're going to leave behind. Levi left it. But then it also includes, you could, you could take the lines of that word and wrap it around everything good in your life as well. <laughs> Leaving everything behind and involves saying, you know what? You can have my job, my kids, or that house on the hill, or my dream for retirement, or, you know, my hopes of ever having a spouse, or, you know, my health, or my ministry, or my career aspirations, my money, whatever, you can have it. I leave it if it means I get to follow you, if it means I get you. And so when Jesus, his call comes to us, follow me. It's almost like he draws a line in the sand and we're kind of walking up to it. Some of us are running over it. <laughs> and others of us might be sitting here scratching our heads, trying to do math in our head going, is this worth it or not? And if you're there, if you're on that line, if you're thinking about what sorts of things you want to hold back for yourself right now, I've been praying for you and I'm praying for myself that we would, if I could put it this way, cross the line and enter into the party. Enter into the party. You say enter into the party. What party are you talking about? 
You see, that's where this whole text is going. That's where the whole narrative is flowing. It's moving from the tax booth to a banquet hall, if you will. From the booth to a banquet. Who doesn't get stoked? Let me ask you this. Who doesn't get stoked when Friday rolls around and you get to, you get to peace out from your cubicle and go be with your family and friends and enjoy a good meal or whatever it is? We love that. Well, that's what coming to Jesus is like as it's portrayed in our text. From the tax booth to the banquet. We're entering a party when we leave it all for Jesus. Now, I should say, but we can't get into the party if we're unwilling to leave it all. I mean, think with me here about other, other stories from the scriptures. Outside the party. You want to know who's outside the party? You want to know who's outside the banquet? That's where, that's where the rich young ruler is. He's sitting there sad. Do you remember him? Leave, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor. Come follow me, Jesus said. I can't do it. I love my stuff. And so he goes away sad. Rich young ruler sitting outside the party sad. You're not in. Wonder who's, who else is outside the party? Remember the elder brother from the parable of the prodigal son? Elder brother's out there. Couldn't let go of his self-righteousness. Couldn't let his dad celebrate in grace over his sinful son. No way. Don't you know what he did? You never, you never killed the calf for me. You never threw a party for me. I'm out here judgmental, critical, self-righteous, and I won't let it go. He's outside. Meanwhile, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the broken, the sick, the weak, the lame, they're inside. Because they left it all for him. For him. Now, we arrive at the meal that I mentioned at the beginning. Read verse 25, 29. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. What an amazing thing. I love this meal from Levi's perspective. We'll look at it next week. We might be tempted um, to immediately and only really see this meal from Levi's perspective. After all, it's in his house. It's his food. He's the one who, who makes the meal for Jesus. This is Levi's meal, Levi's table. We should see it from Levi's perspective. But before we look at the table from Levi's perspective, we got to see it from Jesus's. Because you remember what I said about if even a tax collector, if even a tax collector enters your house, your whole house is, 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 is unclean. Well, then what does that mean if Jesus is entering the tax collector's house and sitting around a table with him? Before this is Levi's table, let me tell you, this is Jesus's table. I want to give Jesus the mic first because there is amazing grace being displayed in this text. What in the world is Jesus doing at Levi's table, eating with him? What is he doing here? 
It's one thing to talk to a tax collector along the road, and it's another thing altogether to enter into his house and eat with him. I'm telling you, redemption is being revealed around this table. That's Jesus' table strategy. He's revealing redemption when he eats bread and fish and drinks wine. This is an act of grace that will send tremors up the spines of the religious elite in Jesus' day. How in the world is this supposedly man from God going to go and eat with that guy and his company of cheats? Liars. Now, to understand this sort of thing, we need to get a handle on the way Jesus and Israel conceived of the dinner table in the first place, because it's a bit different. We'll talk more about this next week. It's a bit different than, especially here in America, how we see the table. I mean, this is, we, we invented drive through and fast food. We got no concept in many ways of what the table and table fellowship meant to the Jews in their day. Let me read you this from one scholar. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment, which is how I often approach it. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. Think Judas there. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. You hear this? So the table in their day especially was a symbol of friendship, intimacy, and unity. It was how you reconciled. It was how you enjoyed deep fellowship with others. That's why we'll read things in Luke's gospel where we see like in Luke 7.34, eating with someone makes you their friend. Or in Luke 15.2, eating with someone is indicative of receiving them. You're my friend, I receive you, I eat with you, I fellowship with you around the table. So now we start to see the act of grace that it is for Jesus to come in and sit with Levi and his band of other tax collectors and sinners. And what grace it is for him to come sit and eat with us. But furthermore, Uh, understanding how they saw meals explains why the Pharisees and their scribes are so, so torn up about this. Let me read you verses 30 to 32. Because not everybody's happy here. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we're going to look a lot more at at that next time, I think. But for now, I just want to give you a one-liner. I just want you to see one thing, and that's this. Hear me. The great physician's operating table is the Son of Man's 
dinner table. Say it again. The great physician's operating table is the son of man's dinner table. If you look closely, the Pharisees are complaining about who he's eating and drinking with. What are you doing eating with these guys, Jesus? And what's Jesus' response? I'm doing physician work here. The way that I heal souls, the way that I heal the sick, forgive the sinner, put them back together is around the table by eating and drinking with them. The good, uh, the good physician's operating table is the son of man's dinner table. <laughs> I told you I'd read from that book I, I gave away to Kathy. Well, let me start to jump in. This is Tim Chester. This is what he has to say on this point. How would you complete the sentence? The son of man came. There are three ways the New Testament completes the sentence. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19, 10. And finally, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. It's Luke 7, 34. The first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. In other words, the Son of Man came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. And the way he would accomplish it, the way he was going to seek and save the lost, the way he was going to do this would be by eating and drinking with us. That's his major missional strategy. It's the dinner table and how you eat, how you fellowship around it. That's where he reveals redemption. It's like pass the salt, pass the cheese. There's redemption being revealed around the table. Chester goes on and he says this, because we're going to see this all over Luke's gospel. It's amazing. Jesus spent his time eating and drinking a lot of time. He was, you have to bear with him here, a party animal, you could say. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread and a pitcher of wine. Luke's gospel is full of stories of Jesus eating with people. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with the tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. That's where we're at right now. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman's tears at the home of Simon, the Pharisee, during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus, another tax collector. In Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with the two disciples in Emmaus. And then later he eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. Robert Karras concludes in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal 
or coming from a meal. You got to love Jesus. It's amazing. His mission strategy is to hang out with us around the table and reveal his redemption there. Now, perhaps all of this seems surprising to us. <laughs> we might think that that's, that's his big strategy. I mean, we're reading books. We're looking for ideas to grow a church, to expand the mission, advance the kingdom. That's his strat- a table strategy. Way more strategic than we think. And you know what? It shouldn't have surprised us. This shouldn't surprise us. If you could bear with me for a few minutes more, I'm going to start taking us home. But what I want to do, what I want to do is show you should not have surprised us because all of redemptive history, all of the biblical narrative can be seen through the lens of a meal, through the lens of a meal. Think about it. What is Genesis? But the invitation to a banquet when we're created, God creates us. Okay. And what, what does he essentially say? Come and dine with me. How, where am I getting that? Genesis 1:29. God says, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. He said, I want you to enjoy all of this. I want you to eat all of this in my presence with me. Dine with me. And of course, we know that everything went wrong. How? Over a meal. Because there's one tree that he said, hey, listen, not that one. And we said, not that one. Well, then that's the table I want to sit at. If that's the table where you're not sitting, that's where I want to be. I'll eat alone. Thank you. So isn't it amazing? Humanity fell by way of a meal. But the scriptures also make plain that in the new heavens and the new earth, if I'm going to go all the way over to Revelation now, Genesis, Revelation, all of, of, of humanity will be restored in the, new he- in the new heavens and new earth by way of a meal. By way of a meal. What does that angel declare for God in Revelation 19.9 as the story's wrapping up? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come and eat. Come and eat. The bride of Christ is ready. Or Revelation 22. You remember what the Lamb's bride is invited to do. They're invited to drink from the river of the water of life and eat from that tree of life. It's a meal. We're going to be restored by way of a meal. But then, of course, we ask a question that leads us towards Calvary. Because we do have to ask, how does the rebel, the traitor, the enemy of God become the bride? How does the one who said, I don't want anything to do with your table, get invited back and restored to fellowship around the table? Well, we know that the answer is by sitting at the table of Christ. We rejected the table of Eden. We're sitting at the table of the new Jerusalem. How? Because we sat down at the table of Christ. 
That in between those two outlying and ultimate meals, the beginning and end of world history, Jesus comes into time to share a meal with us. And as we follow kind of through Luke's gospel, what we'll see, uh, you just saw the massive list of meals that that we're going to watch Jesus eat with people. But it's all going to rise up. It's all going to climax in one final meal, fitly called the Last Supper, right? Where he says, man, I can't wait to enjoy this Passover with you. This is it. I'm not going to eat with you till I eat with you again in the kingdom of my father. This is the last time we're eating. And what does he do? He breaks bread and he says, man, this bread... It's symbolic of my death. And this, this, this wine, it's symbolic of my blood being poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm going to be the Passover lamb. This whole meal that he eats, this last supper, symbolic of the son's undoing. But it's also, as we can see now, symbolic of, of, of the great way that God is going to reconcile us to table fellowship with himself. He does it. He does it through a meal. He does it by giving his life over and then calling us back to the table. Humanity fell by way of a meal and humanity will be fully restored by way of a meal because humanity has been redeemed by way of a meal, a meal symbolizing the death of God for sinners. So, returning now to our text and and closing here. This is how Jesus is able to eat with Levi. This is what he's doing around the table that the Pharisees and their scribes have no concept of. He's revealing his redemptive purposes. He's going to take on sin and die and in that reconcile these people, sinners, broken, sick to himself. I'm the traitor. I'm the cheat. I'm the unclean that's called to Jesus's table. That's you. That's me. We are the Levi's here. So let me end this way. I don't know what sorts of things are keeping you perhaps from the table of Christ. But let me assure you, whatever your background, whatever your political affiliation, whatever your sinful tendencies, however hopeless you feel, however broken, however socially awkward, however outcast, however much of a failure you feel for being a parent or being... (coughs) a kid or being a Christian or being an employee or being a boss, however broken, bruised, messed up you feel relationally, like every relationship you touch just falls apart. However lost you feel in life, like everyone has a plan, but you don't have a plan. However filthy, unclean, disapproving, however sick you feel and for whatever reason, There's room around Jesus' table for you. Robert Munger says this. The church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. 
do that. So don't, don't let your unworthiness keep you from the table. It's your unworthiness that qualifies you for the table. He wants you there. He died to have you there. Let's worship our Lord now. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have redeemed us by way of a meal. (laughs) That across the table, you, you rewire us and put our hearts back together. God, thank you that you take time, that you draw near, you get as close as you can to sinners like us. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for reconciling us to yourself. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for our great hope of reunion with you in the banquet hall of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.